Uh, good evening, everyone. If we can go ahead and open our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5. We're going to pick up right where we left off this morning. Uh, I'm on this diet right now, and uh, I didn't get a chance to eat too much today, so I'm feeling a little weary here. <laughs> so if I fall down, it's, it, it's okay. You know, it's just from lack of food in my system. Um, but we looked at this morning uh, some more visions from Zechariah, uh, things that uh, he was able to witness that were supposed to be a picture to him of a spiritual condition or a truth that is taking place. Uh, we're going to finish the visions of Zechariah here, and um, we'll have gone through the, these eight visions and kind of gone through half of the book. The book is kind of broken up into four parts. Uh, the first part just being that first six verses, the second part uh, encompassing these visions. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin reading in Zechariah 5, verse 5, and it reads, And the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is the resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. So we have this interesting vision that's taking place. Uh, Zechariah sees a basket. And if you have an old King James, it'll probably say ephah. Um, an ephah was a device used for measurement. So you would have a... They, estimated somewhere between four and ten gallons, so that's really no help to us at all, but it's somewhere in that range, and it was used as a form of measurement if they were going to measure wheat or barley, uh, any of the goods for, for trade or for selling, they would use this ephah, this basket. So we have here pictured a form of measurement used in commerce, and then it uh, mentions here a lead disc. Uh, and a lead disc uh, may say talent in your Bible, I'm not sure, but it was a talent that was placed over. A talent is another form of measurement that they would have used to weigh things out. Uh, it would have been anywhere they estimate from 60 to 80 pounds, uh, so quite heavy. And so in this ephah, in this basket, you have this lead disc, and you have a woman that's sitting in this basket. Uh, we think of 4 to 10 gallons is not big enough for a normal woman to fit in there, but... That's what he sees. And what's interesting is he really doesn't know what he's looking at. He just sees a basket with a lead disc, but he, he asks the angel, and the angel has to explain the whole thing to him. We have this idea that it's picturing this woman as wickedness. Um, and it's being put in a basket, and there's being a lid put, put over it, seemingly that she can't get out right now. Wickedness is being covered. And we have this picture taking place in verse 9 where it says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. So we have this picture of this basket, lead disc, this woman representing wickedness inside of it, and then he sees two women with these wings as a stork, and 
storks have these huge wings. It's like the largest wingspan of any bird next to the condor. So it's these big sets of wings, and it carries this basket away. Uh, one thing that I always ask uh, when I'm studying the Bible is, well, why a stork? Why does they have wings like a stork? Why even mention things like that? Um, there's certain things that either the angel is mentioning or Zechariah is noticing and asking a question about that makes us wonder, why ask that question? Um, you know, we would think that we would ask, like, what is wickedness? Like, explain to me wickedness. Tell me what that is. And why is it pictured as a, as a woman sitting in a basket? Um, but what he sees is these wings of a stork. And I looked up stork and tried to figure out, is there any significance to that? Uh, the interesting thing about storks is they're migratory birds, but they tend to return to previous nests that they've already built. Uh, so they have this nest, they have to migrate somewhere else, and then when they go back, they depend upon the winds to carry. They're not big flappers, so they depend on the winds to kind of glide their way back there, but they'll return to a nest that they've already been to before. And I think that's what we have pictured here. And if we take it in the sense the land of Shinar, we know from Genesis, is Babylon. Um, so we have this wickedness that we would assume at this point in time is idolatry. Uh, this wickedness that was in the land of Israel, it's now being put in a basket, covered up, and sent to the land of Shinar. It says, till an appointed time. There's going to be a home built for it in Shinar. Um, to the children of Israel at this time, that probably wouldn't have meant much. Uh, to us, having the book of Revelation, knowing the things that take place uh, in the last days, the land of Babylon, uh, the woman riding the beast, there's so many things that are pictured in Revelation that ring bells in our ears but for the children of Israel, they just would have kind of just nodded their heads and thought, okay, this is what's going on. So we have a, a picture, this idolatry that's being carried away. One thing that's interesting about the children of Israel is before they went into captivity, they were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of worshiping other gods. They were guilty of turning away from the Lord, not letting the land rest um, and we see that when they were taken into Babylon, when they came back, they didn't have the same issues. We don't see them anymore worshiping idols um, from here into Malachi. And even when um, the Lord Jesus comes, we don't see that to be a particular issue with the children of Israel. They have other issues at the time, um, but that's not one of them. So this, this idea of this wickedness, this idolatry that so plagued the children of Israel is now being removed from the land. And so finally they're able to after this vision of, of judgment, the flying scroll going by, now we have this woman, the wickedness being removed, and we're going to get into this next vision of four chariots. And really, these last couple of visions are really picturing the judgment that's taking place and the restoration for Israel at this current time. Uh, like I said, the first four visions can be tied to the end time for Israel, the ultimate goal for them. <clears throat> We're going to pick up in chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 1, and it says, Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze, with the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Uh, so now he looks again, you know, this, this whole idea how we can tell these are 
um, successive visions that will always say, and he looked and saw. I looked and saw. I looked and saw. And we're, we'll see in the next part where it breaks up, and it says, the word of the Lord came unto me. Uh, so we see that there's a difference between these things. So now, after seeing this, this vision of this wickedness being carried away, he sees chariots coming out of these huge mountains, mountains of bronze. And when we think of bronze in the scripture, we often think of judgment. Uh, we often think of the brazen altar. We often think of uh, things that were sacrificed there, judgment that was poured out. So we have here this picture of these big mountains of bronze and these chariots, these uh, really weapons that were designed for warfare coming out of this, this mountain. And we see that there's four sets, different colors, uh, also reminiscent of, like I say, Revelation. And it says that they're strong steeds. And verse 4 says, Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? One of the things like, I just want to bring up again is how Zechariah continues to ask questions. Uh, when we're reading the Bible, when we're thinking about spiritual things, do we ask questions? Um, perhaps we're not asking enough questions. Is there some question that you need to ask the Lord? Is there something that you need to, to come before the Lord and, and, and really ask? Uh, I think here, like I say, what's pictured in most of these visions, if Zechariah didn't ask, he may have never gotten an answer. And it just simply would have been a vision, something that he saw, and he passed by and simply go on his way. Uh, we don't want to be those kind of people. We don't want to let spiritual truths and things like that just pass us by. We want to take the time to ask the question, uh, to admit ignorance, uh, to be willing to, to look foolish at times. Um, there's times in, this, in these sets of visions where the angel says, don't you know? Don't you know what these are? And Zechariah says, no, I have no idea what these are. So we need to have that same attitude. Uh, so he asks this question, what are these, my Lord? Verse 5, the angel answered and said to me, these are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. Uh, the one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, see those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. When we think of the north and the south country for the children of Israel, it often pictures their enemies. Uh, we think of Egypt to the south, and the reason they say north is because if you were traveling from Israel to Babylon, Israel to Persia, any of these things, you would have to travel north to get there, and you would have to follow this crescent over there. So going north would have been what they're talking about here. Um, what we have, too, is there's four spirits, and whenever we see four, we think of the earth. We think of the four directions we have, north, south, east, and west, and often when the number four comes up, it's referring to something that's taking place on the earth. Um, we have here different color horses going to different areas, and it says that they're being instructed to go out. Uh, sometimes when we look at the world, we think it's chaos. We think that there's no real plan. We think that things are just happening and there's really nothing in control. But there's a very definite plan and there's very much a controlled effort taking place. 
Uh, we don't need to doubt that God is in control. We don't need to doubt that things are not as they should be. Uh, things are exactly as they should be because of the condition of our hearts. So we see this judgment taking place. Uh, what's interesting, if we think all the way back to the first vision, we think of the angel of the Lord sitting on a horse and crying out, saying that these nations are at rest while the children of Israel suffer. This isn't, this isn't right, and it needs to be made, made right. And he cries out, how long will you let this take place? And we see that this is finishing up with, in a sense, judgment going out to the north country and quieting his spirit, meaning things have been dealt with in that north country. This could be picturing uh, the put down of Babylon and the return from captivity for the children of Israel, that Babylon has now been put down and dealt with. Um, so we can take a big sigh of relief. We could take a big breath. Those are the eight visions of Zechariah. Uh, we've, we've gone through them all, and really this, this whole purpose has been to give Zechariah comfort that the struggles they're facing right now, they get better. They don't only get better in the long run when Israel will be the head of the nations, when they will dwell in the holy city, when that's where the Messiah will reign, rule from uh, Jerusalem there. Uh, they don't only have to look forward to that, but they can look forward to the here and now that God is working. Uh, the temple will be rebuilt. Uh, wickedness has been taken away, and these, this judgment is, is now taking place. And in fact, the north country has already been dealt with. Uh, this is to encourage the people. This is to encourage Zechariah. And I think, how do we relate this to our own lives? And I said this morning, it's easy to look to the future and say, well, everything will be good in eternity. You know, once, the, once we go home to be with the Lord, everything will be good. Um, well, there's a reason why we're here, and it's not simply to just wait until we go there. Uh, there's a purpose that we're supposed to be fulfilling and there is a goal that we're supposed to achieve. Um, sometimes, I was speaking with someone this morning, sometimes we look at the, the difficulties in our life as a punishment. I'm being punished for something. As a Christian, that's not true. The Lord took all the punishment. The Lord has paid it all. God is not judging us for our sins or according to our sins. If we have sin in our life, the Lord is disciplining us in order to make us more like his son. The goal is forward, not backwards. And so in this case, with Zechariah, he's trying to encourage them, don't look backwards. you got to look forwards. you got to keep going forward. And all the opposition you see, all the reasons you have to give up, I just want you to know, I'm going to get you there. And I think with the Lord for us today, all the difficulties that we may have in life, as believers, all the, the struggles we may have. In the end, the Lord is encouraging us. He's the one that gets us there. He's the one that's paid it all. He's the one that accomplishes this great work. It's nothing through our own power. We don't have to go out and remember this morning, it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. Um, there's something very comforting in knowing that the Lord is on our side and we don't need to let this get us down. Uh, when we look at the world today, it's very easy to get discouraged. We were doing role-playing today for evangelism, and, uh, you know, you would think that everyone is just a hardcore, like, hates Christianity and hates the Lord. And what David and I found out when we were going door-to-door -door is that's really not the case. Uh, people are pretty open to talk, and people are actually interested. 
uh, once you put your finger on something or the Lord puts his finger on something in their life and points out their sin and their need for repentance and to trust Christ for salvation, that's when it gets a little, uh, it could go either way. That's when they make that decision to accept or reject Christ. But for the most part, people are open to discuss uh, spiritual things. So let this be a comfort to us, even though this was all visions meant for the children of Israel. Okay, perfect. We're going to pick up in verse 9 of chapter 6. Now, like I said, this ends the, the visions, and now we're going to have an acted-out prophecy. So no longer is this just something Zechariah is seeing. This is clear instruction. He's given instruction to do something, to have certain people there, and for it to be a memorial of this prophecy that he's given. So again, he's just acting this out as the Lord commands. So in verse 9, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tabijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day, enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Um, this probably would have raised red flags uh, for Zechariah because you don't put a crown on the head of the high priest. Uh, you don't mix those offices. If someone is a, a high priest, they were from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Aaron. And if somebody was a king, they would have been from the tribe of Judah of the line of David. So you have two totally distinct, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Offices. Yeah, two totally distinct offices. And we have something taking place that we've never seen before, a high priest getting a crown put on him. And the instruction is very clear that there's these three men, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, uh, who have come from Babylon and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So the same day, meaning do this right now. Don't put it off. I know you're going to have questions. I know you may doubt what I'm saying, but just go and do what I'm telling you right now, today. And it says, take this silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. These crowns would have been made up of many, many, like, rings. So it would have been like a, a set all the way up. It would have been very elaborate of the gold and the silver being made up as this crown. So in verse 12, he gives instruction as to why he's asking Zechariah to do this. It says, then speak to him, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Uh, really an amazing prophecy, and we have this messianic term coming up again, that speaks of the branch, the branch being the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that it speaks of, behold, the man, so this is a, a man whose name is the branch. And it talks of him being able to sit as a king priest on the throne in the temple. What's interesting is that We've already stated that the temple is going to be rebuilt, and it's going to be rebuilt by Zerubbabel. 
so there must be something that happens with this temple that's built by Zerubbabel, uh, something that they don't know about because uh, about 500 years later, uh, the temple that was built by Zerubbabel that was redone by Herod would be destroyed by the Roman emperor, Titus Vespasian. Um, he would have sacked Jerusalem and destroyed that temple. And in fact, there's no uh, temple for the Jewish people there in Jerusalem today. Uh, so this branch, this man, is going to come back and he's going to rebuild this temple uh, in Jerusalem. What's interesting about this, this idea of the branch is we're, we're going to trace it a little bit uh, through some of these Old Testament prophets. We see it come up in Isaiah. We see it come up in Jeremiah. And now we see it twice in Zechariah. What's interesting about the branch is that if we think of the four Gospels, we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one brings about a certain characteristic or trait or office that the Lord holds. In Matthew, we see him portrayed as the king, the coming king who is to reign. In Mark, we see him as the perfect servant. In Luke, we see him as the perfect man. And in John, we see him as the son of God. These four mentions that we have of the branch that we're going to go through hit on each aspect of those traits, just like the four Gospels. And what's interesting is that the first mention would have been in Isaiah chapter 4, and it would have been the one that refers to him in the sense of the Son of God. And uh, we'll take a second and we'll go back and we'll look through those uh, right after we finish this portion here. But notice the thing that it says about him uh, in verse, let's see, in verse, well, in middle of verse 12. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Again, there would have been a question, I thought the temple was going to be built by Zerubbabel, it should already be done by then. And in verse 13, if you had a question, he says, yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. As in, I, that's what I said. I said he's going to build it, even though you think it's already built. Um, yes, he's going to build the temple of the Lord. And it says, he shall bear the glory, which is interesting. And shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Um, again, you wouldn't have had a priest on a throne. That's just uh, an, an impossibility uh, biologically because they're two separate lines. Uh, the only one that qualifies as a priest king to sit on the throne is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a priest, as we read in Hebrews, after the order of Melchizedek a king priest, um, something that was pictured very briefly in Genesis, something that was shown in prophetic form here in Zechariah, and something that is clearly explained in Hebrews. Um, so you could trace it throughout the entire scripture, this plan that God had from the very beginning, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be this one that would sit on the throne. Verse 14 Verse 14 reads, Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So we have this crown now. Zechariah has taken this time, this gold and this silver, and he is... Uh, made a crown, and he has set it on Joshua's head, the high priest, and he has given this prophecy. 
Then the crown is taken from Joshua, and it's going to be kept in this house as a memorial forever of this prophecy that has now taken place, that there will one day be this man, the branch, that will come and sit on the throne and as a king-priest. What's interesting is that we notice the names are changed, uh, which is common in the Old Testament. We often see a number of different names used for individuals. Um, and we have this idea in verse 15, even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Uh, they might have this idea at the time of their uh, relatives that decided not to come back from Babylon that are still afar, that they're even going to come. Uh, this be, is more likely picturing the Gentiles. Um, because when we look at the New Testament, it often refers to the Gentiles as those being afar off, those being far away, uh, then being brought nigh. Uh, so that would uh, picture uh, the Gentiles there, even though the children of Israel wouldn't have uh, assumed that had they been reading uh, this portion of text. But he tells them, Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. What's interesting is he's given this instruction by the word of the Lord. In this portion here in verse 15, it says, Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Jehovah sending Jehovah. You wouldn't see that at the time. And you would kind of read through this and not even notice it. But even there, it's, it's showing this characteristic of this one that is from God being sent. Something that, you know, the children of Israel just didn't really take into consideration. Something that when we read our Bibles, we don't take into consideration. But we have this word coming from the Lord, and it says that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Well, who's speaking? The Lord, Jesus Christ. Father sent him to come. And by the rebuilding of this temple, by the priest, uh, the, the priest king sitting on his throne, then they will know that all this was true from the very beginning. Uh, this will be a testimony, something that God has set up in his word for them to look back on. Uh, so we're going to take these last couple minutes here, and we're going to look at this idea of the branch real briefly, because I'm starting to feel a little wobbly up here, actually. Um, yeah, something, fiber bar. Um, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. I don't normally like to do this and jump around. I normally like to stick with my text, but um, I feel like this is a, a neat thing to, to look at. All right, <clears throat> we're going to begin reading in verse 2, and it starts off similar. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, 
Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud of smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering, and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat and a place of refuge and for shelter uh, from storm and rain. Uh, so we have here this early mention of the Messiah as the branch. Um, this would have been perhaps a little bit more than 300 years before Zechariah, um, maybe a little bit even more than that. But it would have been quite a number of years before. And so we have in that day the branch of the Lord, the branch of Jehovah. Now, if you have a branch of something that is tied to a tree, um, that's kind of the picture we have, uh, the, the Godhead as the, this tree and this branch, uh, the Messiah coming down to fulfill a certain uh, task. Uh, so we see this pictured more as the Gospel of John is the Son of God, uh, the one who comes who is of God, the branch of Jehovah. And it says, He shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Uh, so it's talking about Israel who have escaped. It shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. What's interesting, for the church today, the one that has borne the judgment, the one that has experienced the punishment, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't experience this um, judgment uh, from the Spirit by burning, by fire, by this cleansing. We experience the blessing from the blood of Christ. So when Jesus Christ came and he was lifted up on a cross between heaven and earth and strung out there, shedding his blood, and God in those three dark hours judged him for the sins of the world, that was our judgment if you've accepted Christ. If you have not accepted Christ, it's freely available for you. Uh, that's always the shocker. It's hard for someone to accept something that's free. Uh, we often uh, are jaded by that and we ask, well, what's the catch? What's the catch? What do you mean you're giving this to me for free? You know, if you tell somebody that, first thing that comes to mind is, well, you mean the most evil man in all of human history can simply trust Christ and repent and be saved compared to somebody that perhaps is practicing some other religion that is sincere, that is uh, what we would consider a righteous person, and they could be condemned to hell? And the answer is, yeah, it's exactly the truth. That's hard to swallow at times. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus paid it all. And if it's not all, then it's not all. So we have in this aspect of sometimes we meet people that have this tendency to think, well, you need to trust Christ and. Sometimes we do this to ourselves. We put burdens on people. And we say a Christian is somebody who believes in Christ and doesn't go out dancing. A Christian is somebody who believes in Christ and dresses really nice and doesn't have tattoos. Uh, someone who believes in Christ and doesn't drink. Um, there's certain standards that we place on people. 
and there's certain things that we add to it uh, when the truth of the matter is Jesus paid it all. And it's simply an acknowledgement of personal sin in order to believe that. Um, we have here this case of this filth being removed. For the children of Israel, after the church is raptured, we're looking far into the future of the book of Revelation. After the church has been raptured, judgment will be poured out on the earth, and at least two-thirds of the children of Israel will be killed, destroyed. One day the Lord will return, and he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it says the children of Israel will look on him in whom they have pierced, and that day they will all be saved. But they experienced it through the judgment because they didn't trust Christ before. They, didn't, they weren't born again and born into the body of Christ, the church. They were saved, as it were, through fire. And we see that a number of times in the New Testament. Uh, so it's a, it's, a little, it's a little hard to, to take in, but this idea that even here in Zechariah, we would think of the Lord cleansing away the filth and the, the dirt from us by his blood. Here it's by the judgment of the spirit and by burning. Uh, it's a little bit different. <laughs> one is pain-free for us and one is painful for them. Um, kind of what side do you want to be on? So we have here this, this idea of comfort that's going to take place. Let's go ahead and turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23. This is actually one of my more uh, favorite portions in the scripture. So if the first mention of the branch spoke of him as the son of God, this, this next mention uh, will speak of him as king, uh, typifying this book of Matthew that we think of as the coming king. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 5 of chapter 23 of Jeremiah. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Uh, we would know this as Jehovah Sitkenu. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Uh, we, here we have the idea of the north country being brought up again that we see in Zechariah, the north country being these enemies that have taken away the children of Israel uh, captive. This picture right here, as I said before, is a picture of the coming king. So we have the Son of God, we have the coming king here. And it says, He shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Uh, in his days Judah will be saved and all Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name. The idea here that is pictured, we often think of these pictures of the branch as being future. This is what's going to happen. This is what the Lord is going to do. And every reference will say, in those days, or the days are coming when this will take place. Um, but we have it being in perfect fulfillment with what God has already prophesied. We had a king that was going to be of the line of David. He's going to sit on a throne. He's going to execute judgment. Uh, this idea of people want peace and safety today. The whole world wants peace and safety. 
Uh, it's chaotic. There's people that are afraid to travel to certain countries. They don't want to because they see that it's not safe. Well, in order for it to be safe, you would have to have one that was righteous executing judgment, one that was willing to stand up and put down that which is wicked. Well, all of a sudden, when we talk about that, we're not really sure. Uh, do we, you know, can't have one without the other, so maybe we'll take the chaos and, and not talk about it too much. Uh, in order for, there to, for us to dwell safely, in order for things to be safe, the Lord will have to be reigning in Jerusalem. So don't look for peace and safety in our day. Um, there's going to be a time where people will think that it's going to be peace and safety, and then there will be a, a tribulation, a time that the world has never, ever seen before, uh, a time of Jacob's trouble. Um, so in the moment, you know, we think of Christians today, we think of people today uh, praying for peace and safety, praying for certain things. It's good to pray for the opportunity to witness. It's good to pray for safety for missionaries, for things like this. But as far as a global peace, uh, the moment that the world thinks that that's actually taking place, they're in for a rude awakening. And it's, it's not going to be a good time. So don't, uh, don't, get, don't look for those things because it's not going to happen until the Lord's here. Um, so we have this picture here. The Lord's going to come and it says, The Lord our righteousness. Uh, this is what his name will be called uh, by the children of Israel, meaning the children of Israel aren't righteous. They're not a righteous people. The Lord is righteous, and the Lord is going to give his righteousness to them the same way we receive the righteousness of the Lord. If we're honest with ourselves and we look at the law of God, sin in our own lives, we know that we're not righteous. Uh, that's the first step towards salvation. You have to know that you don't measure up, that if you stood before God, uh, judgment would come. And judgment is death in hell. There's only one way out, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, our righteousness. Uh, this idea. Go ahead, and we're going to flip back to Zechariah chapter 3, where we were earlier today. We're going to look at verse 8 again. It says, uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, Hear, O Joshua, the, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, we see a removal of guilt and peace coming in, uh, peace and safety. What we have here is Mark uh, pictured as the, the servant. Uh, he's speaking of my servant, the branch, and it says these are the things that he's going to do. We'll notice that if we line up what we saw in Isaiah as the son of God and what we see as the servant here, it's going to be a lot of similar items. Uh, taking away the iniquity and, and bringing uh, peace to the land uh, as if the Son of God's work was to be a servant for God and to fulfill these things. Um, what we saw in Jeremiah is him reigning as a king and executing judgment. Um, so we see one is he's taking away this filth 
um, by himself, and the other we see him sitting on a throne executing judgment. And we looked at this earlier today, uh, so we'll flip again to the last one we saw, which was uh, Zechariah chapter 6. should be just a page over. And at verse 12, it says, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Uh, here we have the man. Everything is stated pretty clearly now that you look back through it. Uh, Behold the man whose name is the branch. This is a, a picture of Luke's gospel, uh, this perfect man. And so when we line up all of these things that we see as far as messianic references as the Lord Jesus Christ as the branch, it's going to line up perfectly with what is given to us in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Meaning, what everything that God was trying to show us about his son is in the Old Testament, if we're willing to take the time and go and look. Uh, we think of all of these prophecies would have been over a span of over 300 years in between, and yet they all speak of something a little bit different that the Lord is going to do, and yet the only one that fulfills these things is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so oftentimes when you think of how do I know that I can trust the Bible, uh, the more you look into it, the more you'll wonder why you didn't trust it to begin with. Uh, there are so many things, and you talk about so many years of, of this time frame, being, I think it's like 1,600 years from the first book to the last book written, and yet there's nothing that's off. And even when it's given to the children of Israel at that time, and they may read this and say, there's, this isn't possible. There's no way you could have a man from two different lines. Well, it is possible. Uh, they just didn't realize how the Lord was going to go about it. And it, it's actually very exciting uh, as you read through it. So we have this final one as the branch. So we have he's going to be the, the son of God. He is going to be a servant of God. He is going to remove the iniquity. He's going to sit on a throne and execute judgment. And now this last portion, from his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Uh, he will also be a priest. I just wanted to throw that in there because I thought it's fascinating. And as you go back and you study this idea of the branch, um, look into it on your own time, and then look to New Testament fulfillments of this, uh, a, a lot of these you'll see in the book of Revelation, and we're studying that on Monday night, so we're going we're gonna to get into it as we continue on. Uh, so what, what do we take away? What do we take away from this portion uh, that was meant for the children of Israel, these last two visions of Zechariah and this acted-out prophecy? One thing that we can take away is that God's plan is perfect, and he's got everything set up in order. We don't need to wonder if God's forgotten or if God isn't there. Everything is taking place exactly as he has planned it out. And that's not something we need to worry about. What we do need to worry about is if you haven't trusted Christ and you're sitting in here and you think of all of these things that will take place, um, you're only given today as a guarantee. Tomorrow will worry about itself. There is no tomorrow for you. You only have today. This is all we have. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior... It's dangerous for you. It just is. If you aren't completely 100% certain. Uh, before I was saved, I didn't believe you could know for sure that you could go to heaven. Uh, if you were to ask somebody, would you like to know 
for sure today that when you die, whenever that may be, that you will be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more weeping, no nothing. Just being in the presence of God for the rest of eternity. You can know today. Most people would say, yeah, I, I, I want to know. I want to know. What does it take? Well, it takes believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were talking about this in our evangelism class today. Imagine this is a $100 bill. Okay? This is a $100 bill. It's not an envelope. It's $100 bill. This, this is the gift. This is what you have to get to receive this gift. So you have to take the whole thing in order to get the gift that's inside. Okay? Eternal life is just a gift. And in order to get that gift, you have to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you, you can't get this gift of eternal life without receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an action that takes place. It's not something that is simply... Um, there are plenty of people in the world that believe a lot of things about Jesus Christ. They believe that he was the son of God. They believe he was virgin born. They believe he died on the cross for the sins of the world. They believe a lot of things about Christ, but they have not received Christ. Have you received Christ today? Are you saved? This is the question. Would you be willing to receive the gift of eternal life that is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it's a free gift, you just have to be willing to receive it. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee uh, for all that is given in this word, for all that we have to look to to strengthen our faith, for all that we have that encourages us. Uh, Father, we know that we do grow weary, that we do uh, get tired, but Father, we pray that by Your Spirit we would see great things done, that You would receive all the glory. Uh, we pray for anyone here that does not know your son as Savior. We pray that they would not shrink away, that they would not allow their pride to get the best of them, and that indeed they would surrender their lives to Christ. They would admit their need of a Savior. They would see their sin and cry unto the Lord for salvation. For we know it is freely available, for he has shed his blood at the cross of Calvary, and he has won the victory. Uh, we ask all these things through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.